Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Good morning, everybody. And like Tori said, we're continuing our series through the book of 1 Peter. And hopefully on your way in, um, you received a rock or a little stone. If you didn't, you can grab one on the way out. Just a little reminder. But if you got it, I want you to hold on to it. And like one of my ushers reminded me, we are talking about Peter, not necessarily Stephen. So we're not going to be throwing rocks at anybody, stoning anybody, anything like that. Um, if someone makes you mad, you can take it out on one of our trees outside. So just keep that. Um, hang on to it. We'll come back to it later on. But as we dive into um, the book of First Peter, continuing the series, I want you to think of just your most favorite place on earth. If you could be anywhere, where would you want to be right here, right now? Some of you might be a historical place. It could be a memorial in Washington, D.C., or maybe a place like Normandy, or just somewhere that kind of brings about a memory of what God has maybe done in your life or something that your country has done. For some of you, even though it's getting cooler outside, it could be the beach. You just want to prop up your flip-flops and just take, take the load off and just be in nothing but peace and tranquility. Some of you might be power. It might be the boardroom. It might be D.C. It might be a place where you can exude, like, this is who I am and this is what I want to do. Um, but all of us have a favorite place. And in T-minus five days, I will be headed to one of my favorite places, um, a place in northeast Montana. Um, one, I'm really excited to go there to get to hunt because it's one of my favorite things to do. But I'm really excited because of sunsets like this, which is just beautiful. Um, but two, there is zero cell service in northeast Montana. So if you try to call me, good luck. It's not going to be happening the next, the next few days. But the reason why I like this place is just the absolute tranquility and peace that it brings. I don't know if God literally made sky bigger in Montana, but it absolutely feels like it. But I'm able to get away from all the hustle, the bustle, the craziness, the people, the responsibility, and just take a moment and breathe. And the reason why I want to bring up not just this place, but your favorite place is we're going to talk today about a place that God is building, that God is structuring, one for his glory, but also for our good. It's a place of peace. It's a place of tranquility. It's a place of power, but ultimately it's a place of connectedness and love. And we like to call that here at the chapel gospel community. You might know it as the church globally, but really it's a place where God is honored. We are brought together and we have a part to play in it. So that's what we're going to be talking about today over the next few minutes. Now to remind you of where we are in First Peter, First Peter is written by a guy named Peter. They were really original with the naming of that book, but Peter was one of the original disciples of Jesus. He was actually one of his closest three friends, Peter, James, and John. So he knew a lot about Jesus, but he is writing a letter to churches in the first century to remind them of what Jesus has done, but what that means for them. And really, he's writing to people who are living in a pretty hard Time. If you remember from the last couple of weeks, these are people living under the rule of guys like Nero. These are people who are being disowned from their families because they decided to follow Jesus. People who are having their lives threatened on a daily basis. And Peter's writing to them to remind them of one thing, to stand fast in the grace of God. He's saying, trust what Jesus has already done and then trust by hoping in what he promised that he will do. He's saying, no matter what you face, stand fast in the grace of God. Of God, And so far, we've kind of looked at individually what that looks like to be his chosen people, to be radically saved by the grace of Jesus. Last week, we looked at, okay, how do we begin to live that out? And today, we're going to look at how do we do this together? Because this life, following Jesus, was not meant to be lived 
alone. Navigating hardship, navigating chaos, navigating a world full of Nero's, even though we don't have too many of those left, thankfully. We are not to do that alone. So he's going to tell us how we stand fast in the grace of God through our identity individually, but ultimately collectively as his church. Now, to warn you before we get into 1 Peter chapter 2. There's going to be a lot of metaphors in this passage, a lot of Old Testament references, a lot of prophecies, not to mention Peter in and of himself is pretty ADD. Peter writes like I talk all over the place. So we're going to kind of be all over today, but I've kind of put a little more structure to our outline than we normally do. I'm actually going to give you the points of where we're going before we even dive into it. So if it feels a little different, it's just because we're trying to make sense of what Peter is actually saying. We're going to see two main things he tells us about our identity. We're going to see how that changes and gives us purpose. And ultimately, we're going to look at why that is the case. So let's dive into 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read all the way from verse 4 through verse 8, and then we're going to unpack those verses as we go. It says, As you come to him, the living stone, speaking of Jesus, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6. And this is an, an Old Testament prophecy we're going to come back to from Isaiah chapter 26. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Verse 7 is from Psalm chapter 118. Now to you who believe this, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 8 is actually from Isaiah chapter 8. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Like I said, very confusing. But we're going to walk through this just step by step. And the first big identifier of our identity Christ wants us to see is this. Because we follow Jesus, we're being made into a spiritual house. We're actually being built into a gospel community, a place to connect into a spiritual house. And we see this in verse 4 and verse 5, but really I want us to focus on this first phrase, as you come to him. Everything we're talking today about identity, about coming together, about being a part of something bigger than ourselves is only possible if we first come to Christ. But I want you to understand, guys, how big of a deal this is. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion, every other cult, every other commune. We're not being invited to be a part of a historical fraternity. We're not being invited to be a part of a world movement. We're not being invited to be a part of a cult that has a very smart leader who can tell us what to do. We're being invited by the creator of the universe to come and commune with him, to come and connect with him. To come and be loved by him. And this, as you come to him, is actually also meaning remaining in him. So it's not just a you come one time and things change, which is the case, but we remain in him. He becomes our life source. So when we talk a minute about what it means to be built into a spiritual house, it first starts by coming to Christ, which is what we've looked at over the first couple of weeks in 1 Peter chapter 1. The beautiful grace of Jesus saying, hey, come to me. So what in the world do we mean by spiritual house? We've kind of alluded to this, but this is the bigger picture of what God is doing here on this earth. The, the translation literally could be a temple of the Lord or a temple of the Spirit. If you're a follower of Christ, God now dwells within you. But as the collective body, as the church, as a gospel community, this is where God dwells collectively among us. It's a place of love, connectedness, encouragement, accountability, and also growth. 
So God is determined. He wants to build his people into his spiritual house where he dwells. But my question is, how in the world does that work? Well, Peter gives us a metaphor here. He says, we're being made into a spiritual house because we are living stones. Because we are living stones. So if you got your rock, I want you to pull it out. Again, don't throw it at anybody, anybody yet. We are actually living stones. And, we're, and we saw in, in verse 4, it says Jesus is actually our living stone. And then we too are made into living stones. It means he is alive. He's giving his life to us. But what in the world is the deal with a rock? Like, we don't think much about rocks in today's term. We put them on gravel roads. We run over them. We might throw them at our kids or something like that. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But we, have, we think about rocks not as necessarily something that's big metaphorically when it comes to Christ. But rocks or stones were very, very big back in this day. One, we see illustration after illustration in the Old Testament of the coming of Christ and talking about him being a stone. But stones were important in this time because stones were how things were built. They didn't have cement. They didn't have brick and mortar. They didn't have sheetrock back in this day. Things were built by stones, and they were shaped and put together purposely by the builder to build something. And the first stone that would be laid would be called the cornerstone. It was the foundation. If it was off, everything was off. But if it was stable, a building was able to be built. And we'll see in a minute that Christ was the cornerstone. But then every other rock would be placed particularly together. I like to call it a heavy puzzle. They didn't have a lot of mortar. They didn't have a lot of stuff to hold it together. So they would have to fit correctly, fit together well to hold things together. Which means a little rock that you have in your hand by itself, not much. But you put a lot of little rocks together and a building, a spiritual house begins to be raised. So individually, yes, we have Christ, but there's not a whole lot of power in us individually. But together, God is building his spiritual house. And when it talks about living stones, I read that and I'm like, living? Like, there's nothing alive about a rock. Like, I had a pet rock growing up and it never followed me to school like Mary had a little lamb. Like, what do you mean living rock? Well, Peter's reminding us that Jesus is alive. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 6. He says, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. So our living stone is now giving us his life, his character, his power. He's saying, I am building something through you. So um, Steve said a while ago in the Live Sent video, buildings don't build a church, pastors don't build a church, sermons don't build a church. Christ does, and he's deemed us as his rock, as his living stones. Paul says it even a little bit stronger in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Now, Peter has called us foreigners. He's called strangers. He's called us exiles. He's saying that's in the context of this world. But whenever you come to be with other people, when rocks get with rocks, you are now citizens of the same kingdom. You're now citizens together with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Remember, he is the basis of everything we do. In him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple, a spiritual house in the Lord. So Peter's saying, guys, if you feel like you're all alone, you're not. In this world, you're exiles, but when you come together, God is taking your little bitty rock, putting it on top of Christ the cornerstone, and together he is building something far greater than us as individuals. So our identity, we are living stones. But when you build a house with a stone, every single stone serves 
a purpose. And that's what Peter gets to next. Our new purpose is this. We offer spiritual sacrifices. We offer spiritual sacrifices. Look back at verse 5. He says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He said, You have a purpose to offer spiritual sacrifices, but you do it by being a holy priesthood. Now, unless you grew up reading a lot in the Old Testament or you know much about Jewish history, you're thinking, A holy priesthood? Like, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, back in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant before Christ came, priest would be the mediator between God and man. So they would speak to God on man's behalf. They would speak to man on God's behalf. And actually, they would be the ones that would take the sacrifices, that they would slaughter the animals, and then take it to God to atone for or pay for mankind's mistakes. So the priests were very important. And they were only men and only from the tribe of Levi. And I had a friend growing up named Levi, and he was anything but a priest. So it was always confusing to me. But the priesthood used to be the mediator between God and man. And they would offer the sacrifice of sheep, of goats, of cows to make sure mankind's sin was paid for. But eventually God got tired of killing goats and killing sheep and having all those things slaughtered that he did something about it. And that's what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. No longer are priests needed because Christ is now our mediator. The wall between God and man has now been torn down. We now no longer need a representative between us and God. Once we come to Christ, we have full access. That's what Peter's saying. We are all now part of the priesthood. We all now can come to the Lord. But he says we still offer sacrifices. I'm like, well, Jesus offered himself. Like, I can't offer anything better than Christ. What in the world am I offering? We're not offering things for our sin. We're offering things for the glory and the worship of God. And we see this all throughout Scripture. The first sacrifice that we're called to offer is ourself. It's our own body. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, yourself, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When we follow Jesus, we have to realize our body is where God dwells, but our body is what we have to offer to him. That's what we talked last week about holiness. It's so important about what we put in our body, what goes in our ears, what we see with our eyes, what goes in our mouth, what comes out of our mouth, that we're using all of that to the glory of God. We are now individually the personal sacrifice offering ourselves to the Lord. But it's not just our bodies. It's also our finances. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says, I've received full payment and am more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus, it's a good dog name, the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Their financial gifts are an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, this is not a sermon on money, anything like that, not going down that road. What Paul wants us to understand, and in turn, Peter, is this. God has given us everything. Everything we have is his. He's entrusted it to us. And when we trust him and give it back to him, that is glorifying to him. That's saying, look, I trust you with this. Now, some of us at the chapel are extremely, extremely generous, and we're very thankful for that. Some of us are just very shrewd business people and say, I get a tax break if I give to Jesus. I help the kingdom and myself. Amen. This is going way beyond that. This is saying, Lord, I trust you. I'm sacrificing It hurts a little bit. I'm trusting you with this. When we approach stewardship financially from this position, 
That is pleasing to God. So it's our body, it's our money, it's also our voices. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. It says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips that openly profess his name. That's what we did just a few minutes ago when we sang those three opening songs, Great Things, Graves in the Gardens, and Cornerstone, that were beautifully led by Amanda and Connor. But also, I love sitting up front, one, because I hear them a lot better, but I get to hear y'all sing. And it was absolutely beautiful. Y'all sound way better than the 9 o'clock service does. But the idea is we're using our voice to proclaim the praise of God. But this is not limited to a Sunday morning piece. This is a constant lifestyle of praising the Lord. Verbally saying it, singing. The only time I'm allowed to sing at the house, according to Abigail, is in the shower because she can't hear me sing. So the idea is to have this constant voice of praise. Praising God for who He is outwardly. But it's not just praising with our voice. Verse 16 shows that we praise ourselves or praise, uh, praise God by helping other people with our resources. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, again, sacrifices, God is pleased. This is taking what we have and helping other people. This is what we call care ministry here at the chapel. And care ministry, part of that is financially helping people who are in need, but it's also offering financial coaching, using the resources that we have, the financial knowledge to help people know how to navigate bills and debt and all those things. It's people who are really good with their hands, who can build things and tear down things and not destroy things. It's using those skills to help each other. It's parenting in a way. It's mentoring. It's taking what God has given us and using it to honor him and honor each other. And Peter actually gives us a glimpse of what this looks like within the church in 1 Peter chapter 4 that we'll see in a couple weeks. He says, above all, love each other deeply. Talked about that a lot last week. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality. That's the word you probably heard from the beginning of the chapel. And you're going to hear a lot about that over the next 1, 2, 3, 4, 25,000 years here at the chapel. Hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. He said, you want to be a living stone, a part of the spiritual house that I'm building? Recognize that you are not your own. And if you show up offering your body to Christ, offering your voice to Christ, offering yourself to each other, God will build you into a spiritual house. And Peter shows this in verse 11. Look what he says. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Living stones are all about Jesus and all about each other. But the question is, why and how? Why is that important and how do we do this? Well, that's the because piece. We're being made in a spiritual house because we received, not rejected Jesus as the cornerstone. All of this power, all of this love, all of this life is flowing through Christ as our cornerstone. All of this building is upon a firm foundation. Everything we do is based off of who Jesus is and what he's done. And we see this in verses 6 through 8. And I want to read all the way through them and then work, work our way back through them. If you remember from week one, we talked about the prophets, the guys 100 years before Christ were obsessed with Jesus. This is just one, one showing of what, what that looks like. Look at verse 6. It says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who puts, and the one who puts trust in him 
will never be put to shame. Again, Isaiah 26, Psalm 118, verse 7. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So from the very beginning, we see this example of the cornerstone, either allowing it to be the foundation or being an issue. And even Jesus himself speaks of this in Matthew 21, verse 42. So Jesus said to them, and this them here is the religious leaders, the people who knew all the passages we just read, who know way more about Scripture than I could ever even try to know. He's talking to them. He's saying, have you never read the Scriptures? If you think Jesus is this boring little Boy Scout, like he's hilarious. Like, are you really, you really smart guys who get paid to do this? Have you really ever read these things? He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's like, that's me. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. Have you ever read this? He's saying, all of this is about me. He's saying, we have a choice. We either receive the cornerstone or we reject the cornerstone. And if we want to be built into a living stone, into a spiritual house, we have to receive the cornerstone. We have to receive Christ. And he showed us what this looks like. Look at verse 6. I'm going to go back through it. It says, for in Scripture, see this. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. From the very beginning, this was God's plan to send Christ. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The one who trusts, the one who surrenders, the one who has faith, the one who puts his or her hope in Christ will never be put to shame. Remember who Peter's writing to here. People who are experiencing nothing but shame. They're running for their life. They're being disowned by their family. They're being laughed at by their friends. If you're really following that dead guy with long hair and a beard, like you really believe in all the stuff he said? They're like, are, are you kidding me? They're living in nothing but shame. They're living in nothing but pain. But Peter's saying, look, all of that is worldly. All of that will come to pass. If you trust in Christ, you will never be put to shame. He's saying you persevere for perseverance sake, but you persevere because your God is bigger than anything you're going to face. That's what happens when we receive Christ. What happens when we reject? Look at verse 7. It says, Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, it's a stone the builders rejected. He has become the cornerstone. I want you to look at that word rejected there. This is a rejection, not just, a, I'm going to blow it off and not worry about it. This is a, a, a term that says they rejected it after looking deeply at it. They rejected it after examining it. They saw the work of Jesus and his, his three years of ministry, and they said, you know what? We don't want it. They, they respond in contempt and in spite. They say, we don't want what Jesus offers. We are rejecting him. He goes a bit further in verse 8. He says, in a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Now, I do want to clarify, he's not saying they were destined to disobey. He's saying if they disobey, then they were destined to fall. If you disobey Christ, you're going to fall. But what, what he's saying here is, guys, the cornerstone, the rock, at face value, is very confusing. It's very, very hard to believe. Both for the Jew, the one who, who learned about it all the time growing up, but also for the Gentile, someone who has no explanation other than what Peter has told them. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, but we preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. He said, believing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, 
was hard for the Jews to believe. Why? Because Jesus didn't look like what they thought he should look like. They did not believe because he did not look like they thought he should look like. They thought he should be a military leader coming in on a white horse with a sword, defeating Rome, defeating death, defeating sin, and restoring Israel to power, not God to man. He looked differently than expected him to look. They didn't expect him to be a carpenter who was poor, who grew up without a house, and eventually died at the hands of religious leaders. He did not look like what they thought he should look like. What about the Gentiles? These are people who aren't Jews. They're people like you and me who grew up maybe hearing about the coming of, of some Messiah. But it's foolishness to the Gentiles. Because think, this is a pagan world. They're thinking, okay, gods don't die. Like gods are not the ones who are killed, especially to be killed for the moral, immoral little peasants who are living on this earth. It's really hard when you look at the gospel to believe, how in the world could God love me enough that he would die for my mistakes? The gospel in and of itself <clears throat> can be a stumbling block. And what we see here is a question. What is causing you to stumble? If you have not received Christ, if he has not regenerated and made you new, what is causing you to reject him? Maybe... You're like the Jews, and Jesus doesn't look like what you think he should look like. He calls you to a life that you don't particularly want to live. Or maybe you're like the Gentiles, and it all seems like foolishness. Tonight, I have the opportunity to speak to our college students um, at a refuge, and they're in the middle of a series called God Is. Um, and all the good ones were taken that God is Father, God is love, God is peace, God is all these things. I get God is truth, which talking to a bunch of postmodern college students scares me to death. So um, I'm speaking to them about truth tonight. But I begin to realize as I'm thinking about that audience, I'm thinking they're rejecting Jesus' truth, not because of anything Jesus has done or anything that's offensive from him. It's the way we represent him as his church. The way that we have become a stumbling block. So if you're rejecting Christ based off of how Christians act, I get it. If you reject Christ because of the way the church has handled things in your life, totally understand. But I want you to take a step back and look at him, not us as his representation. Look at his life. Look what he offers because he is the cornerstone, not us. He is the foundation, not us. And we receive him. We're offered grace, love, mercy, truth, and an invitation to take our small little life and be a part of something bigger. So when we receive Christ, we're invited to be a part of the spiritual house God is building. Now that's the confusing stuff. Now we're about to get to the really good stuff that's a little bit more clear. Look at verse, verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And here's our second, second big identity statement here. Because we follow Jesus, we are God's special possession. We are God's special possession. Peter, Paul would actually say that in Ephesians chapter 2. We are God's masterpiece. Now, I was called special growing up for lots of different reasons besides a good reason. But God of the universe is saying, not only have I purchased you, not only do you belong to me, you are special to me. You are mine. And he gives us some very clear language here. And this language is actually very closely tied to Old Testament language of how God would speak of Israel, how God would speak of his chosen people. Look what it says here. It says, we are God's possession. We are his chosen people. 
We're his royal priesthood. We are his holy nation. This is how the Jews, Israel, this is how God's chosen people were spoken of in the Old Testament. And now Peter's saying this, is, this title has been given to you. Not because of your lineage, not because of your blood, not because you're automatically becoming Israel. We don't become Israel whenever we follow Christ. But we take up the mantle of what God said to them and now rest upon us. No matter what the world says, no matter what the enemy says, no matter what you say about yourself, the God of the universe says you're chosen, you're royal priesthood, you are a holy nation. So I want to walk through each one of those statements and see what is actually being said. Chosen people we see show up in Deuteronomy chapter 7 back in the Old Testament. This is where Moses is writing, talking about Israel's relationship with God. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people. Look at this, his treasured possession. It says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than all the other people. He didn't choose Israel because they were really good at having babies. That's not why he chose them. He says, it's because, because you're more numerous than others. For you are the fewest of all people. He said, actually, you are the least of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. It's because the Lord loved you. Same thing for us. God chose us, not because there's a lot of us. He didn't choose us because we were special or because we were good or because we earned any favor. He chose us because he loved us. And they kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So by being a chosen people, number one, it shows that we are loved, but also it shows that we are rescued. We've been redeemed. Just like the, the chosen people of Israel were redeemed from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, we as the chosen people, his church, his gospel community, his children, we haven't been redeemed from the hands of Rome. We've been redeemed from the hands of death, from the hands of sin. We have been reconciled to our Heavenly Father. We have been chosen because he loves us. So we're his chosen people. We're also his royal priesthood. And we talked about what priesthood was, where we represent, we have access to God, we're a mediator now, we represent him to this earth. But I want you to look at that little word there, it says, royal priesthood. We are now not just king, I mean, sons and daughters of the Most High King, we are now royalty on this earth. We represent God's kingdom here and now. There is no one between us and God, there's no one over us now. We represent our king in the here and now. We offer spiritual sacrifices for our kingdom. We have the authority of our king on this earth. Guys, we are not just chosen. We are now royalty because we have been born again into the kingdom of God. The next one we see is holy nation. We talked about holy a lot last week. Again, holy not as in Swiss cheese, but holy as in set apart. Holy as in different. We're exiles in this world because we belong to God. We belong to a different realm. We live in now the kingdom of God. Of God, We are set apart to live a different way. And the last part, we already mentioned this, is kind of the big title. We're God's special possession. Because you are God's masterpiece. I hold an old pastor when I, when I grew up. I thought it was kind of corny at first. It's still corny, but it's so true. He goes, the devil, he knows your sin. He knows your mistakes. He knows all those things. He also knows your name. He just chooses to call you by all those mistakes. He chooses to call you as broken. He chooses to call you a mistake. He chooses to call you shame. But our Heavenly Father knows all those things too. But He chooses to call us, not just by name, but to call us His. We are sons and daughters, special possession of the Most High King. If there's anything that can help us navigate this world, 
is the knowledge of that. But it's with a purpose. We actually have a purpose in this. Our unique purpose is this, to declare God's praises. To declare his praises. Look back at verse, verse 9. It is but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That statement of purpose, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we've been called his children. We've been called his chosen. We've been called all these things for a purpose, to declare God's glory. Guys, that's why he left us here on this earth, was to fill his earth with his glory. And he has called us to do that. Now, how do we do that? Do we just start screaming out, hallelujah, praise the Lord? Absolutely. You might get really weird looks when you're in line at Subway just by screaming hallelujah. Like that, that's part of it. But the verbiage here is actually declaring by living out, declaring by living out in a way, living a different lifestyle. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, 16, best sermon ever preached right here. This is in the same way. Let your light shine before his sermon, not my sermon. I want to be very clear there. Jesus' sermon. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, see the way you're living your life, and then glorify your Father in heaven. That is declaring God's praises by living a different life so they might see you. Light shines brightly in darkness. And I don't know if you realize this, guys, but people are watching how we live our everyday life. If you're a parent, you know this full well. People are watching everything you do. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was taking um, Abigail to school. She goes to Cup Club at Bethany Christian School, so right down Segan underneath I-10 and Internal Riga Road. And um, I was coming underneath the bridge of I-10, and we're, we're jamming and playing um, the Goldfish song. And if you're a parent, now it's stuck in your head, you're welcome for that. So we're singing the Goldfish song, and all of a sudden, a car is merging from I-10 onto Segan Lane right in front of me. And I drive a big vehicle, so it's really hard to stop. So I slam on my brakes, coffee flies everywhere, milk flies everywhere. Thankfully, I buckled her in. She didn't fly everywhere. My truck still smells of spoiled milk because of that. But I'm slamming on the brakes, and I scream, gosh, car. Thankfully, that's all I said. And I lay on my horn, like just absolutely like, what in the world is happening? For the next five minutes, all I hear is from the back, gosh, car, daddy, honk. Gosh, car, daddy, honk. We get home that day. Mama, daddy, honk. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what are we doing here? She sees everything I do. She repeats everything I do. She's always watching. And you don't have to be a parent for people to always be watching because when they see us, when they watch us, are they going to say, holy cow, that, that dude is jacked up? Are they going to say, oh my gosh, his God is good. The way I interact with people today, tough conversation I had this week, I was able to mirror what my father had put on display for me to deal with people in tough situations. People are always watching. And God says, the way you declare my glory is by the way you live your everyday life. Living as a chosen people. Living as a royal priesthood. Living as a holy nation. Living as God's special possession. But how do we do that? Well, what's the motivation behind all this? That's our because statement. Because we received mercy through Jesus. We do that because we received mercy through Jesus. Look at verse 10. It says, once you're not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We don't see this in our footnotes of scripture, but Peter's actually going back to the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, I told people in 9 o'clock service, if you get bored with the Chapel Bible reading plan, just read Hosea. It is intense. They even made a movie on Netflix about it. Like it is absolutely intense. But I want you to see Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. 
He says, Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted, in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. They will be called the children of the living God. He's reminding his audience, primarily Gentile, that, hey, Israel is still God's people. They're still God's chosen people. But the beautiful thing is in chapter 2, verse 23. It says, I will plant for her myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. The people who are not followers of Christ, people who are not Jews. I will say to those who are called not my people, you are now my people. And they will say, you are my God. This is a prophecy of God's kingdom going beyond the nation of Israel. But this was fulfilled through Christ to where it's now, before, before Jesus, no one were my people. You were living in sin. You were not my people. But the moment you trusted in Christ, the moment you received him, the moment you were changed by mercy, then you became God's people. And guys, that only happened because of that one little word, mercy. We love to speak of grace in the church. And don't get me wrong, grace is absolutely needed. Faith is needed. Hope is needed. It is all based on the mercy of God. Because mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And we all deserve the wrath of God. I hate that word. I hate talking about that word. But it's the truth. We all deserve the wrath of God. Because we rebelled. We were not his people by our choice. But because of what Jesus did. We're now invited to be his children. To be his living stones. To be his chosen people his sons and daughters, his royal priesthood, his special possession. Because we have a purpose on this earth. That's to build God's kingdom. We have a purpose to fulfill by him being our God. The decision is, do we receive that? Or do we reject the cornerstone? And if we have received him, are we helping build his kingdom? Are we a willing participant? Are we offering sacrifices? Or are we getting in the way of other people coming to Christ? We are his living stones. And he invites us to play our part. I'm going to ask you to bow your head this morning. I'm going to ask you to bow your head because we're going we're gonna to take a little bit longer at the end of today's message than we normally do to process through. And the biggest reason why is this. I believe there are people in this room who have not received Jesus Christ. Let me explain what I mean. You, you might have come to church, you might believe that there is a God, but you have never placed your trust in Him. You've never surrendered to Him saying, you know what, I have messed up. We can all agree we've messed up, but God, I've messed up against you alone. And I've tried to make it right, but I couldn't. I've tried to fix it, but I couldn't. Receiving and trusting Christ is believing that Jesus has already done it all. He was our high priest who went and made the sacrifice that we couldn't make. Now he invites us to step into a relationship with God. He says, come to me. Because all we talked about today only applies to those who have received Christ. That's why the very beginning of verse 4 is, as you came to him. Today, Christ is saying, come to me. And I want to give you that invitation today. Because it's, it's really, really, really simple. He's done it all. We just believe that he is the true son of God who came who lived a perfect life so he could be a worthy sacrifice. But he looked at us and he deemed us worthy. Because he loved us, he died on the cross to pay for all of our sins so we might be offered forgiveness. But then he rose from the dead to offer us new life. He is a living stone and we in turn can become living stones because he rose from the dead. We receive Christ by simply believing that fact, that he's the son of God who died for you and he rose from the dead. And if you're ready to do that today, it's very simple. It's believing that Jesus is the Son of God who died 
for you. I'm going to be down front after the service, have some booklets. I would love to give you, I would love to have a conversation with you about what it means to say yes to following him, to trusting in him, receiving him as your savior. But maybe you're here today and you have received Christ. You have received him. You're, you're a living stone. You might be, feel like you're half dead, but you're still a living stone. You belong to Christ. But instead of offering spiritual sacrifices, you've offered yourself up as a stumbling block for other people. By the way you live your life, by the way you talk, by the way you represent Christ, you're not helping other people see the glory of God. You're causing them to stray away. And I'm going to give you a chance this morning to repent of that, to lay that at the foot of Jesus, to lay it at his feet and say, Lord, I no longer want to be a stumbling block. I want to be a living stone for you to build your place, your kingdom, and your gospel community here. Because guys, the identity we have in Christ is pretty incredible. What he wants to do through us, we can't even begin to fathom. We have to lay ourselves down and pick up Christ. Father, we love you. God, I thank you for everyone in this room. Lord, for those who have come today who have not received you, God, I pray that you would just draw them close so they would see how deep your love is. God, that you know everything they've done wrong and you still love them. You know everything they're going to do wrong and you still love them. God, the same way that you loved me and still love me no matter what I do wrong day in and day out. God, I pray that your love would transform them in the here and now. And God, for those of us in the room who are a lot like me who have received Christ but don't always live like living stones, who don't always live like a chosen people, who don't always live like a priesthood and ambassadors. God, I pray that we would be a representation of your kingdom in the here and now. That we would see that you are using us to build your kingdom. You're using us to build your gospel community. And God, that we would see this is so much bigger than ourselves. They were able to escape shame. We're able to persevere in this world. Not just for survival's sake, but God, for a purpose of your glory. Or may you be known in this world because we're faithful to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.